0: Let me ask you this, what drives you? In other words, what motivates you? When you're making a decision, what are the the things that are are compelling you towards a certain outcome? For some people, it's it's pretty obvious what drives them. Some of you maybe saw the Netflix documentary that came out last year called The Last Dance, which outlined the career of uh, probably the greatest basketball player who ever lived, Michael Jordan, And the six NBA championships that he and the Chicago Bulls won in the 1990s, focusing especially on the last one in in 98. And many people who watched this documentary commented on how driven Michael Jordan was to win and to be the best. It determined everything about how he conducted himself in life and on the basketball court. He wanted to win. He wanted to be the best. It drove him. Uh, more than anything else. Here's a few things that he said. He said, I play to win, whether during practice or a real game, and I will not let anything get in the way of me and my competitive enthusiasm to win. This drive uh, caused him at some points to be um, probably not very fun to play with, Uh, he pushed his teammates. In fact, he tried to push certain teammates out of town because he didn't like their work ethic or how skilled they were. He said this, my mentality was to go out and win at any cost. And if you didn't want to live with that regimented mentality, then you don't need to be alongside of me. (laughs) This is his drive to win. It overrode his his treatment of his teammates. Uh, He also said this, there are so many times that Tex, it was one of his coaches, Tex Winters, used to yell at me saying, move the ball, move the ball. There's no I in team to which Michael, respond, Michael Jordan responded by saying, there is an I in win. And of course, he didn't like to pass the ball. He would, like, would prefer to shoot the ball. Winning drove him. It drove every decision that he made, and it drove him to a lot of success. He did win a lot, but it also cost him in other ways. So what drives you? My guess is that we are complex and we're driven and motivated by a lot of different things. Sometimes we're driven by noble purposes. Sometimes there are are uh, unhealthy or, or um, not very good motivations that are at the heart of the decisions that we make. You know, Jesus answered this question of what motivated him. He answered it in John 4 34, where he said, My food, or in other words, my fuel, what drives me, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, I'm all about what my heavenly father wants me to do, that is my central motivation. With what I am doing on earth. What drives you? We're asking this question because we're in the middle of this three week series on what drives us and motivates us as a church. What are we about and and, and how do we make decisions and and, and what fuels us towards what it is that, that we're doing? We're looking at our mission, helping people find and follow Jesus, and our vision to be a welcoming, Christ centered community that glorifies God by impacting individuals and families near and far. Our mission, helping people find and follow Jesus, is the bottom line. If if we're not doing that, we're missing the purpose. We've gone off course as a church. Of course, that statement is is fairly general. It could be applied to a lot of different churches, and so our vision spells out for us a preferred vision of our future that is a little bit more distinct to us, to be a welcoming Christ-centered community that glorifies God by impacting individuals and families near and far. This is both a statement that describes who we are already and who we want to become. It's a picture of our preferred future. This is what we want to strive after. Out of that vision comes our three main values, to be welcoming, to be Christ-centered, and to be community. Today we look at being Christ-centered, which is the most important of these three values and actually defines the other two. We don't want to just be a community. We want to be a Christ-centered community. Pastor Bobby will talk about that. Next week, we don't want to just be welcoming. We want to extend a Christ centered welcome. And so last week, we talked about what it means to be a welcoming church. Now, there's often a couple of comments that I get after we talk about being welcoming. The first is, well, if we're so concerned about being welcoming to outsiders, will we be shallow and not equip our own people deeply enough because we're trying to be so accessible? And the second question is, are we going to compromise on biblical truth in our attempt to be welcoming? These are good questions to ask. And I would say that our response is that if we're Christ-centered in our welcome, those things won't be true. In fact, if we're Christ-centered in our welcome, we'll follow the example of Christ. And Jesus spent lots of time with people who were the outcasts, people who were on the fringes of society, on the margins. In fact, Mark 2 uh, tells the story of how Jesus spent time with tax collectors and sinners. This is like the, the two worst categories you possibly could be, according to the religious people at that time, tax collectors and sinners. And yet Jesus went and spent so much time with this group. And in fact, he reserved his harshest criticism for religious people who were so concerned about the, 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 the neat and tidy boxes they had created about who could be in and who could be out that they had forgotten to love people it would forgotten that there were real people out there who needed to experience the love of God. And so Jesus criticized them quite a lot for that. He didn't criticize them for being concerned about how to follow God well or having their theology correct. Those were important things. He criticized them for not reaching out to those who needed help. And Jesus said, you know, I haven't come to reach uh, the healthy people. Sick people need a doctor. and That's who I've come to reach. Think of the story in John 8, a a woman is brought to Jesus who was caught in adultery. And she is brought, we don't know where the man was, but she was brought to Jesus. It's a bit of a test of Jesus because according to the law of Moses, this woman should be stoned to death. And so Jesus looks around at the crowd and says, well, if any of you haven't sinned, then you are qualified to throw the first stone. But if you have sinned, you have no right to pick up a stone. And so slowly the crowd dispersed. And soon it was just Jesus and the woman standing there. But Jesus didn't just say to her, well, it's all, it's all fine, don't worry about it. Uh, you know, adultery, no big deal. No, he looked at her after showing her this extraordinary act of grace. And he said, go and sin no more. There's a standard to which I'm calling you. And he always was inviting people into greater faithfulness to God. So our welcome is modeled by Christ, and our, our, our value of being Christ-centered defines how we are welcoming and how we are community, because Christ is central. In fact, because Christ is supreme, we follow him in all areas of life. That's our main idea today. Because Christ is supreme, we follow him in all areas of life. And so our goal is to be centered around Christ, to be motivated by Christ, to be oriented towards Christ, to be drawn into Christ. In all ways, This is why, in the uh, spring, summer and fall of last year, we, dis- we um, developed a discipleship pathway in which we're inviting you to picture yourself on this journey towards Christ-likeness. We-, we envision this journey as like an arrow flying toward the target. And in the center of the target is Christ-likeness. We're all on a journey. We're all at different points in, in our flight towards the middle of that target. But nonetheless, that's our pursuit. That's the center. That's what we're aiming for, is to be like Jesus in everything that we do, in all areas of our lives. So it begs the question, why should we center ourselves on Jesus? What makes him worthy of uh, of that kind of commitment in our lives? Why should we orient everything around Jesus? Well, I want to read for you Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23, And then reflect on a few reasons that we find there on why Christ is supreme and should be supreme in our lives. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This passage is originally a poem or perhaps a hymn that the Apostle Paul either wrote or quoted here, and it's a theological goldmine. We could spend months mining the depths of this passage and everything that we can discover about Jesus in it. But I want to pull out just three points that help us to understand why Jesus ought to be supreme in our lives. The first thing that Paul says is that Christ is the creator and the sustainer of everything. Everything the creator and the sustainer of everything. You know, in, in John 1, John describes Jesus as the word of God. Uh, this is the, the, the word, the living word of God. Well, in Genesis 1, when, when the author is describing the creation story, God speaks a word and creation occurs. So this passage isn't trying to give us a a technical breakdown of exactly how the creation happened, but it's saying God spoke the word and Jesus was involved in this process. This word was spoken and creation appeared. God spoke through this word and and the, the planets were formed and the sun was formed and the earth was formed and the waters were separated into the sky and the sea and the earth was gathered into one spot. There's this beautiful partnership That happens, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the creation account. That reminds us that Jesus was there from the beginning. And we owe everything that we see in the natural world to him. When you see a a sunset or a sunrise, you can thank Jesus for that. When you drive the sea-to-sky highway and you look out over ocean and mountains in this beautiful picture you thank Jesus. When you're on the prairies and you see these flat fields extending for miles into the horizon, you can thank Jesus. He's responsible for it all. He's the creator and he's also the sustainer. He's the sustainer, meaning that if Christ ceased to exist, everything else would cease to exist. I love this paragraph from Douglas Moo in his commentary on Colossians. He says the idea that an aspect of God's character or an immaterial concept holds the universe together is a far cry from the startling claim that a man who had recently lived and been crucified by the Romans was the one in whom all things are held together. What holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei, Gravity would cease to exist. The planets would not stay in their orbits. As is true in every line of this hymn, there is particular application to the Colossian Christians, and I would argue to the Canadian Christians as well, who are perhaps being tempted to find coherence by pursuing other religious options in their context. In response, Paul wants them to understand that things make sense only when Christ is kept at the center. Things make sense only when Christ is kept at the center. Because he is the creator, he is the sustainer. All things were created, Paul says, by him and also for him. They exist for his purpose. And in the end, all things will, all created things will worship Christ in a renewed creation. Paul says this, This authority extends to the church that that Christ is the head of the body that is the church. The head meaning the authority, the one that we look to for leadership and guidance. Ross Road Community Church is not my church or any of the pastor's church or the elder's church. It's not your church, it's Christ's church. He is the head of this church, the head of the church in the world. And without him, we would fall apart. So he is supreme as the creator and sustainer of everything, And that's one reason why we ought to center our lives around him. The second one that Paul gives in verse 18 and 19 is that Christ's resurrection proves his divinity. I mean, we know that when people die, they don't come back to life. And so when Jesus did die and three days later came back to life, this is proof that there was something going on that was greater than any of us could comprehend. That there was a, a divinity to him, a, a divine power upon him that allowed him To rise from the dead. And that fact alone, says Paul, gives Christ authority in our lives and in our world. He is the risen one, the firstborn from the dead. And that that phrase firstborn from the dead comes with this idea that Christ is the the king now because he raised he was risen from the dead, but he will be the king in a greater way even in the future, when all things are brought to fulfillment and when he returns again. Because he's the firstborn from the dead, it also contains a promise that there will be more who are reborn from the dead. That those who have put their trust in him in their lives and have died will come to life again to be with him for eternity. For these reasons, Christ is worthy to be at the center. And thirdly, Paul says there's a personal element to this too. You know, Christ is supreme and deserves your allegiance because he's the creator and sustainer of everything. Because he rose from the dead. But there's also something that Christ did for you that ought to determine your allegiance to him. He died for you. He sacrificed himself for you. In verse 21 and 22, Paul says, you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds and because of your evil behavior. But Christ reconciled you. He welcomed you. He accepted you by dying in your place, by taking your sins on his shoulder and walking with them to the cross. He endured this separation from God so that you wouldn't have to if you would put your trust in him. Because of this great sacrifice that Christ has made for you, you owe him your allegiance completely. He deserves to be on the throne of your life, and the center of everything that you do. So a few observations then uh, as we move to wrapping up here. Three ideas and three questions I want to give to you. The ideas start with this statement. Because Christ is supreme, we follow him in all areas, including at least these these three areas. The first is what we believe. The first is what we believe. We look to Christ, the living word, for guidance on how we ought to think about our world. And we look to the written word of God and submit ourselves to it to help us understand what we ought to believe about this world. One of the gifts I got for Christmas, which I'm most excited about, is a range finder. Now, I'm sure these things have lots of purposes, but the one that I got was designed for the golf course. So it's a helpful tool to have because when you get to a a hole uh, uh, on the golf course, you want to know how far you are from the hole. So there's, there's usually a posted yardage at the, the tee box, but sometimes the flag is a little bit at the back of the green or at the front, or the tee box has moved a little further forward or backwards from where they actually took the measurement. So I want to know as a golfer, is this hole 146 yards or is this hole 155 yards? Because if it's 146 yards, I'm going to use my eight iron, but if it's 155, I'm going to use my seven iron. It's going to make a difference in how I how I make my shot. Or if I'm in the fairway and I'm approaching the green, I want to know, am I 177 yards from the hole or am I 190 yards from the hole? That's going to make a difference in how I approach this shot. This uh, rangefinder has a a fun feature too. It tells me how uphill or downhill the flag is from where I am. So it might tell me, hey, you're 112 yards from the flag, but you've got this degree of an uphill slope. So you actually want to play the shot like it's 119 yards. Another helpful thing to know is that the distance I am from the hole is going to influence the kind of shot that I play. We face all kinds of situations in life in which we uh, we need to determine the right course of action. We need to determine what we ought to think about things. The Bible serves uh, as a kind of range finder for us. We look through the word of God to the world to see how I ought to interact with the world, what I ought to believe about things like sexuality, about things like ethics, about how I ought to love my neighbor, about uh, eternity, about the purpose, uh, my purpose and the purpose of this world. I look through the word of God to understand what I ought to believe about these things. So part of being Christ-centered is prayerfully depending upon God and his word. Because it's there that we understand what we ought to believe. Because Christ is supreme, we follow him in all areas, including what we believe. So let me ask you this question. Are your beliefs in line with Christ? Are your beliefs about the world in line with Christ? And if they're not, what adjustments do you need to make? Secondly, because Christ is supreme, we follow him in all areas, including what we do. (laughs) Including our actions. James says that a person who looks into the law of God... And then walks away and doesn't do it is like a person who looks in a mirror and immediately forgets what he looks like. You know, it's like those, those times where you look at your watch to see what time it is and then 30 seconds later someone asks you what time it is and you have no idea. Because you've already forgotten what it is that you saw. Well, if we look at, at Christ and if we look at his word just to see what it says but we don't put it into practice, we're missing the point. We need to build our lives on the solid foundation of Jesus and what he says. So when Jesus says we ought to be generous with our money, that's something we put into practice. When Jesus says we ought to love our enemies, that's something we put into practice. When Jesus says we turn the other cheek, we put that into practice. When Jesus says that we forgive, that's something we put into practice. It's not something we just understand, it's something that we do. Because we want to be Christ-centered. So are your actions in line with Jesus? Are your actions in line with Jesus? And then thirdly, because Christ is supreme, we follow him in all areas, including what we don't do. We follow him with what we do, but we also follow him with what we don't do. I remember being on vacation some years ago and we were uh, at the resort talking with the concierge about different things that we could do during our vacation, and we were excited about a lot of them, but as you know, these things add up pretty fast in terms of the cost, and so we were trying to make some decisions about, well, let's maybe do that instead of this, or, or maybe we'll do that one, and, and, you know, that'll fit our budget, and, and the concierge said to us, you know, if you will go to a timeshare presentation at a nearby hotel, you will receive $200 US off of this whole package, and then you could do everything that you want to do, And so we said, oh, that sounds good. Like, we'll sit through a a timeshare thing. That's fine. And so she said, so is your income over X number of dollars US in a year? At that point, I was a seminary student. I said, well, no. She said, well, do you own your own home? I said, well, no. She said, well, those are requirements for you to attend this timeshare uh, presentation. They don't want to waste your money with you if you don't have any money, or they don't want to waste their time if you don't have the money. But she said, you know what? they don't check. You just have to say yes and check it off here on the boxes and, you know, it'll be fine. You can go. So in the moment, we said, okay, sure, we'll, si- we'll check the boxes. And we did. And we walked away. And, and there was about three days until this timeshare presentation, and it just niggled in the back of my mind all the way until then. And finally, I said to Jenny, I'm, I'm not really feeling that comfortable about how we just lied to get into this thing so we could save 200 bucks. And she said, yeah, that doesn't really feel great to me either. So we decided we'd actually show up at the timeshare presentation and we'd tell the person at the front, you know, we checked these boxes because we were told that would be okay, but it's actually not true about us. We, We don't own our own home. We don't make this much money, but we'll still sit through the presentation if you're willing to give it to us. And we were banking on their good grace that we were, you know, such honest people that they would still give us the $200 off. They didn't in the end. We sat through the presentation, they didn't give us the $200 off, but it didn't matter because we knew that we had pursued honesty, that we hadn't lied for our own personal gain. And yeah, maybe it wasn't a big deal, maybe it wouldn't have hurt anybody, but we felt like we had honored Christ in that decision to be honest in the end. And even though we didn't reap the benefit financially from it, we felt good about the decision that we'd made. So what are the things that Christ says that you shouldn't do (laughs) that we might be tempted to do? If Christ is supreme, we actually won't speak negatively about people either to their face or behind their back. If Christ is supreme, we won't drink to drunkenness because we want our minds to be clear and focused on Christ and focused on prayer, as Peter says. We won't hate those who are different than us. If Christ is truly at the center of our lives. So if Christ is supreme, it influences what we don't do. So here's the question. Are there things that you are doing that are out of line with the way of Christ? And how might you bring that into alignment? Because Christ is supreme, we follow him in all areas of life. We do that as a church collectively but the church is collectively made up of individuals who are pursuing Christ-centeredness in their own lives. That's you and that's me in the decisions that we make, in the words that we speak, in the ways in which we are motivated. We aim to make Christ our highest priority and our central motivation. And when we do so, we experience the beauty of Jesus We experience him using us in powerful ways, and we experience this church as a Christ-centered welcoming community that glorifies God by impacting individuals and families near and far. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are supreme. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our honor. You are worthy of our allegiance. In fact, there is no one else and nothing else that is worthy of that allegiance. And so I and we want to commit ourselves to following you well. Help us to reflect honestly on these questions that we've considered here this morning about ways in which we might be out of alignment with you. May your Holy Spirit bring conviction to us and may we repent and turn to you earnestly and wholeheartedly. And as we make you the center, we pray that you would be honored and glorified and that you would do amazing things through Ross Road Community Church and each one of its people. Pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.